Happy Lord's Day to you. Somebody needs to say it. If you're here in person, you're like the Marines of worship. You are one of the few and the proud, making it at 4 p.m. in the Midwest on Super Bowl Sunday. So well done and lots of honor to you. And to those of you who are worshiping with us online, for good reasons, like cancer or COVID or things like that, we welcome you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And for those of you who stayed home to prepare your bean dip, we believe there's also forgiveness for you. <laughs> no, thank you for being here, whether you're online or in person. It is good to worship together on this Lord's Day. As we start to steer our way into this majestic passage of Scripture, Matthew chapter 3, I wonder if some of you have had that experience of driving into the Rocky Mountains. There's something breathtaking about driving into the Rockies, especially driving from the Midwest into the Rockies. You spend hours and hours driving through the Great Plains, the Flatlands. And then out on the horizon, you see this kind of dark, jagged shape beginning to form up ahead. And from that far off place, even from a great distance, you think those are the Rocky Mountains. Maybe you think to yourself, I've heard that the Rocky Mountains are majestic. And then we shrug our shoulders and we say, yeah, they look majestic. Why not? From that far off place, however, we only have a very vague awareness of just how truly majestic the Rocky Mountains are, right? And then you get to the foot of the mountains and you realize they're way greater than you had guessed. And then you begin your ascent up into the mountains and you realize it's even more glorious than you had guessed a few minutes ago and you see the massive boulders and you see the sheer cliffs. You see the massive ravines cut out in front of you and you begin to realize that there is far more majesty up ahead than I had realized. And then you keep climbing toward a certain peak that you see ahead and then finally you crest that peak. You get to what appears to be the high point and you look over and you realize I've only just begun to enter this range of mountains. What I thought was the high point of this whole journey was actually just the beginning, just the entry point into this majestic range of mountains, right? And so maybe, maybe we once thought way back in eastern Colorado that we knew something about the majesty of the Rocky Mountains. But as we find our way to the foot or up the hill or to the first peak, we come to realize there's far more majesty than we had guessed. And I bring up this illustration to say that sometimes in my life, I've been content with kind of a far off understanding of the majesty of Jesus. 
Kind of like an eastern Colorado understanding of the majesty of Jesus, if you will. I know there are some things about him, and I've heard that he's supposed to be worthy of worship. But I kind of shrug my shoulders and say, yeah, sure, he's worthy of worship. Fine. And this passage of Scripture today is written to invite us deeper into an understanding of the majesty of Jesus Christ. We're continuing a sermon series in Matthew's Gospel. And up to this point, we've read about the origins of Jesus, if you will, his genealogy, his birth, his name, his early childhood. Last week, we read about the prophetic ministry of John the Baptist who came to prepare the way of the Lord. But now, for the first time in Matthew's Gospel, here in these verses, we meet Jesus as a grown man. And the goal of this passage is us or even to draw us a, a little bit deeper into a, a fuller understanding of the majesty of Christ. It's kind of like driving up to the Rocky Mountains, beginning perhaps with only a far-off glimpse of Jesus' majesty, And then this passage, little by little, kind of invites us to an understanding of just how majestic he is. And I realize I'm having trouble with my microphone, am I not? Is it clicking in and out a little bit? All right, give me one second. Let's see if we can fiddle with this and fix it. All right. No. Yeah? Yeah? Hopefully. We'll see if that works. Well, here's what we're going to (laughs) do. Microphone issues aside, here's what we're going to do. I want to walk through this passage together. And I hope that as we do, we will all move a little bit further in our understanding of the true majesty of Jesus Christ. We begin in verse 13. Jesus went to the Jordan River in order to be baptized. And right away, there's a moment of tension between Jesus and John the Baptist, right? Notice that at this moment, John the Baptist is the most dynamic preacher of his generation. And when Jesus comes to the most dynamic preacher in his generation, a modern-day Elijah, as we pointed out last week, what does John the Baptist, the most dynamic preacher in his generation, what does he say to Jesus when Jesus shows up and says, I'm here to be baptized by you? There's this moment of tension as John the Baptist says, no, you should be baptizing me, not the other way around. You see, John the Baptist wants everybody to know that Jesus is greater. Not only that, location is also significant in this passage. Notice this is happening at the Jordan River. And maybe this isn't something that we notice in our very first reading through the book of Matthew, but if we read through the book of Matthew several times, 
pay attention to the fact that Matthew wants us to see Jesus as the fulfillment of all of all of the story of Israel, as the fulfillment of all the Hebrew scripture about Jesus being baptized in the Jordan River becomes a little bit more significant. You see, many generations earlier, Moses had delivered God's people. And Moses had delivered God's people from slavery to Egypt and then led them through the wilderness. But Moses, the great deliverer of God's people, because of his own sin, was not permitted to lead God's people into the promised land. And now... Gospel, Jesus will begin his ministry where Moses left off. He'll begin his ministry where Moses never went. Jesus, when Jesus leaves his muddy footprints on the banks of the Jordan River, it's a sign that he will take his people through the waters across the river even further than Moses. He will take his people all the way to the promised land. You see, whether it's a great and revered preacher like John the Baptist or one of the greatest prophets in all of human history like Moses, this passage is showing us that Jesus is greater. You line up Jesus next to all of the great religious leaders from throughout religious history. And they are all dwarfed like the great plains at the foot of the Rocky Mountains. In comparison with the greater glory of Jesus Christ. You see, this is the first glimpse that we get of the majesty of Jesus. The first glimpse is that Jesus is greater than any leader. And this is still vital for us to understand today. Listen, we need to know that Jesus is greater than the leaders who have disappointed us and let us down and hurt us in the past. And we also need to know that Jesus is also better even than the most dynamic leaders who inspire us. John insists that this is the case. Jesus is greater. He's not just one of many great teachers or prophets or leaders. He is superior to them all. Jesus is. All right, let me pause here. Let's do this democratically. Should I switch microphones at this point? Yeah, I'm getting a couple nods. I'm going to do that, all right? Thanks for bearing with us. We're real people with real technology, and it normally works, and I love it when it does. And I thank God for audibles when it doesn't, right? All right, here we go. We're, we're moving on here. We're moving on. After Jesus comes to John, and there's this disagreement about whether Jesus should be baptized by John, and we see that Jesus is greater, we now get to Jesus' reply to John. Notice with me in verse 15, Jesus' 
reasoning about why he should be baptized. In verse 15, Jesus says, Jesus answers him, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So question, why is Jesus getting baptized? He's not getting baptized as a way of confessing his own sins. He doesn't have any sins to confess. Why is Jesus getting baptized? Jesus is getting baptized, according to Matthew chapter 3, not for the forgiveness of sins, but for the fulfillment of all righteousness. The New Testament wants us to understand that Jesus was more than just a very good person. The New Testament wants us to see that Jesus, more than just being good, Jesus fulfilled all righteousness perfectly for us. And this is a second glimpse that we get of the majesty of Jesus. The second glimpse is that he's fully righteous. Not just kind of good, like we're good. Not just pretty good, but fully righteous. And why does that matter? Think about it like this for a moment. When you trust in your own righteousness for your standing before God, do you know what will happen? When you trust in your own righteousness for your standing before God, here's what will happen. You will find your righteousness to be lacking. And the result of that is probably that you will get discouraged and weighed down and ashamed and burdened. Discouraged. However, when you rely on Christ's righteousness for you, do you know what you'll discover? It's just the opposite. When you rely on Christ's righteousness for you, you will discover that His righteousness for you is totally enough for you. Totally enough for you to rest secure forever in God's love. And instead of leaving you discouraged and weighed down and burdened and unmotivated, quite the opposite. When you find your rest in the fullness of the righteousness of Christ, this will leave you motivated to increasingly live a life of righteousness together with Him. Not a life of righteousness which is motivated by guilt, but a life of righteousness which is motivated by His grace. Not a life of righteousness which is motivated by the fear of what we lack, but a life of righteousness before God that is motivated by the fullness that we've already discovered together with Christ and in Him. You see, when Jesus explains that this baptism is to fulfill all righteousness... We get this glimpse into the saving work of Jesus Christ. He's not only a Savior who wipes away the penalty for our sins. Jesus is a Savior who provides for us all the righteousness we need before God. And thank God for that. And so Jesus continues His work. He persuades John. John consents. He's baptized. 
And he continues to fulfill all righteousness for us, a theme that will come back to you, an important idea that will come back to you in Matthew chapter 4 next week. But now something truly extraordinary begins to happen in verse 15 of chapter 3. Excuse me, in verse 15. Something truly extraordinary begins to happen. Now we're really ascending into the mountain range of the majesty of Jesus Christ. Because as Jesus comes up out of the Jordan River, as he comes up out of the waters of baptism, something unique happens. The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, descends on Jesus and comes to rest on him in the form of a dove. Now, why does the Holy Spirit show up in the form of a dove? I don't know this for sure, but here's my guess. I'll share with you my guess on this, as long as you understand. It's just a guess. The Holy Spirit doesn't have to show up in visible form. And if the Holy Spirit shows up in visible form, the Holy Spirit can show up in any form he chooses. So why the dove? My guess is that it's meant to remind us of the dove that Noah sent out of the ark so many years before. That dove that flew out and found dry land to rest on as a harbinger of hope on the other side of the storm. That dove that found a place to rest as a harbinger of life on the other side of death and darkness and judgment. And so now as Jesus comes up out of the water, the Holy Spirit anoints him or descends on him or marks his presence with Jesus in the form of a dove as a way of saying, once again, I'm marking out for you this sign of hope. This is where your hope will be found, the Holy Spirit is saying. This is where you will discover hope on the other side of the storm. This is where you will discover life on the other side of death and darkness and judgment in Jesus Christ. And so the Holy Spirit descends and rests on Jesus in the form of a dove as a sign that Jesus is where our hope is found. But not only is there the sign of the Spirit, anointing Jesus, but as the Spirit anoints Jesus and His presence rests on Jesus, the heavens are opened and a voice thunders out. The voice of the Father thunders out. This is my beloved Son. Now as we drive up into the mountain range of the majesty of Jesus, we're going to get even further here in a moment. But can we pause long enough to just say, do you see why as Christians we have to believe in the doctrine of the Trinity if we believe the scriptures to be true? If you're new to the Christian faith, you may have heard before that Christians around the world and across the centuries affirm a teaching that we call the Trinity. Or if as a parent you've tried to teach your kids 
uh, one of the historic Christian catechisms to teach kids about the doctrines of the Christian faith, at some point or another, you'll run into a question or answer that goes something like this. How many persons are there in God, the catechism will ask. And the answer goes something like this. There are three persons in the one true and living God. And Matthew 3, 16 and 17 gives us a picture of why we need that kind of answer if we believe the scriptures to be true. The scriptures teach us that there is one and only one true and living God eternally existing. And yet, here in this passage, we see three distinct persons, if you will. Three distinct persons who interact with each other relate to one another, love one another, all of whom or each of whom we call God. And so as Christians, we must affirm that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are not just three manifestations or three appearances of one person, but three distinct persons who can relate to one another. And yet we also believe there is one And only one true and living God. And that's why Christians teach these things about the mysterious and profound and glorious doctrine of the Trinity. Well, now we drive even further into the majesty of Jesus Christ. Look with me again at the words that are thundering out from heaven in verse 17. This is my beloved son. With whom I am well pleased, the voice declares. These words from the Father rejoice in the beloved Son. Maybe some of us grew up in households where dad was stingy with affection or stingy with affirmation. Not so with our Father in heaven. He delights in the Son. And He's glad to tell the whole world about it. If we read Matthew's Gospel from beginning to end, we'll read these same words several times again. I've mentioned before that in the ancient world, like when Matthew's Gospel was written, they didn't have Google Docs with bold and italics and highlight buttons they could click on their word processor, right? And so authors would use things like repetition in order to do bold or italics or to highlight an idea. And so it's very significant that we read these words not only in Matthew chapter 3, but also in Matthew chapter 12, and again in Matthew chapter 17. It's as if God wants us to catch this point. This point that Jesus is the beloved Son of God. The next time we run into these words, it will be in Matthew chapter 12. Where Matthew will tell us that Jesus came to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah 
about the servant of the Lord. Jesus came to fulfill these words. I think they'll appear on the screen behind me from Isaiah chapter 42. Behold, my son, whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him. And he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles or the nations will hope. Behold, my servant, my beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Those prophetic words were spoken about the servant of the Lord. And at this moment, in the baptism of Jesus, the voice of the Father applies these words specifically to Jesus Christ. Not just as a beloved servant, but as a beloved son in whom he is well pleased. You see, according to the voice from heaven, the beloved servant who will bring restoration to all the nations, the beloved servant that the Lord will use to bring righteousness and justice and peace and hope to people from every part of this planet. According to the voice from heaven, the servant of the Lord will be no other than the Son of God Himself. In Matthew's day, as in our day, there was there were a lot of religious options out there. Many different ways you could choose to worship, many different deities you could choose to worship, many different religions you could choose to be a part of. And so in Matthew's day, as in our day, to claim that Jesus is the, is the Son of God... Not just a son of God, like Israel might be called God's child, or like you or I might be adopted into God's family and might become sons and daughters. But to claim that Jesus is the son of God in Matthew's day as in our day is a radical claim to make. And it invites the question, says who? Who are you to say that Jesus is the son of God? With so many other religions teaching so many other ways of getting to God. Who are you to say that Jesus is the Son of God? If you're going to say that Jesus is the Son of God, we'd better be prepared to answer the question, says who? And the way that the early church answered that question, the way that the scriptures answer that question, the way that we can learn to answer that question, is to say, says God. You talk about calling in a star witness in a case, right? Who says that Jesus is the unique Son of God? The Father says so. 
God is the one who claims that Jesus is the Son of God, uniquely beloved above and beyond all others. See, now we've reached an early peak in the mountain range of Jesus' majesty. This is not all that there is to be said about the glory and majesty of Jesus Christ. There's much more yet to be discovered and much more that the book of Matthew itself will show us. But at the beginning of Jesus' ministry... And from wherever we are in our journey of knowing and following and representing Jesus Christ, we need to be clear about this. Jesus is not only greater than other religious teachers. That's true. And Jesus is not only fully righteous. That's gloriously true also. But we need to be crystal clear in our own following of Jesus. And as we make disciples of Jesus among all nations, we need to be crystal clear about this. Jesus was not just a great teacher. He was not just a really righteous person. He was the beloved son of God. And so here's a third glimpse that we need to get of the glory, the majesty, the wonder of Jesus. He is the beloved Son of God. Now, what should we do with that? Let me suggest for us three takeaways here. First of all, if Jesus is the Son of God, and who says so? God says so. If Jesus is the Son of God, what should we do with this? First of all, we should trust the beloved Son. We should trust in Him as our only hope of life beyond judgment, as our only hope beyond the storm. We should trust in Jesus as the one who is able to provide our righteousness that we need before God for us. And we trust in Him above all other voices. Here's a first takeaway. Because Jesus is the unique and beloved Son of God, we are invited, we are called We are drawn to trust in him. But in addition to that, we are also invited and called and drawn to listen to him. In fact, in Matthew chapter 17, when these words are echoed again, there's a little addition. The scene there in Matthew 17 is another jaw-dropping glimpse of the glory of Jesus Christ in a moment that we call the transfiguration of Jesus. You can read about it later yourself. But in that moment, in Matthew chapter 17, verse 5, it says, while he was, or it says he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said about Jesus, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And then these words are added, listen to him. As the Father affirms the unique identity of Jesus as the beloved Son, part of the point is that we should pay attention to the stuff He's saying. We listen to a lot of people, right? I like reading books. I know some of you like reading books. I like reading posts on Facebook. I know some of you like reading posts on Facebook. A little too much, actually. (laughs) We listen to a lot of people. We listen to a lot of advice, but above all the other voices we listen to, 
the Father is crying out across the centuries, Jesus is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Which means the path of Christianity, which begins by placing our trust and our hope fully in Jesus, not in our own righteousness, but fully in Him and what He's done for us and His righteousness for us. The path of following Jesus also involves listening to Him and actually paying attention to what He says is the way for our lives. We'll have more opportunities to think about that theme as we continue on in the Gospel of Matthew together. But we need to pay attention to this. Because Jesus is the beloved Son, we should trust Him. We're called to listen to Him. But I think we're missing where this passage is taking us if we don't end up in a place of being drawn not only to trust Him and to listen to Him, but even to praise and worship Him as the beloved Son. You see, Jesus is the Son of God. And as we get this glimpse into His glory with the heavens opening and the voice of heaven thundering out, this is my beloved Son. I love Him. And in Him, the voice of heaven says, I am well pleased in Him. Do you hear how this is kind of inviting and stirring and drawing and tugging our hearts to join in agreeing with heaven's assessment? Jesus is the beloved son. And in him, I find all my pleasure as well. We're invited as we hear the voice of heaven And the voice of heaven declaring its love for Jesus and its satisfaction in Jesus and its delight in Jesus. We're invited to join our voices in the song of the Trinity. We're invited to join our hearts into the song of the Trinity. We're invited to join our lives into the song of the ages. Agreeing with the Father. Jesus is the beloved son our hearts love him and in him we are well pleased listen here's what this passage shows us it shows us a glimpse of the glory and majesty of jesus christ and it invites us in light of that glimpse to trust him to listen to him and follow him and to join our hearts in praising and worshiping Him. At this time, I'd like to invite those who are going to serve the elements of the Lord's Supper to come forward. As we take the Lord's Supper week by week, this is a part of our worship that reminds us that because of the redeeming work of our Lord,